I entitled the message, I Was Made for This, mainly because I think that finding your identity in worship in God is one of the most important and greatest discoveries that you'll find. Have you ever had one of those moments in your life where <clears throat> you found out, like, I think this is, I was made for this? Sometimes they're recreation stuff. Um, any of you identify with you go to the beach and you could lay on the beach all day and you, were, you came to the conclusion, I think I was made to lay on the beach. <laughs> Some of you spend five minutes on the beach and you're like, so now what do we do, right? This is not really what I was made to do. Some of you enjoy hiking, enjoying God's beauty, and you could go on a hike every day. You would never get tired of it. Uh, these are kind of the small things in life. Some of you like to mountain climb, and these acts of endurance that push your body to the limit is something that you greatly love. Um, some of you love to run. I would put that under the category of acts of insanity. But some of you, you just like were made to run. Like if you could just go run and leave everything else in life, you get in this groove and you just love it. <clears throat> I did the Boulder Boulder this year. I, I was not made to run. I don't know if that's my own selfishness or just uh, the, my muscle structure, but I did the Boulder Boulder and I did it because the person I ran with I was someone that I really enjoy to spend time with. And we got 10K that we got to spend and no kids, no other stuff in my life. And we just jogged and walked on some of it. Uh, some of you love to ski and being out with fresh snow. Uh, there are larger things in life that some of you come to conclusion that you are made for. And some of those are things like... Um, to give you meaning and fulfillment in life or a sense of accomplishment or this is what I want to do with my life. When I, was, uh, when I was a teenager, my dad wanted us each to have two things in life, know how to work hard and have a skill. And so one of the things he did with each of us kids is he tried to help us find a job that would teach us how to work hard and give us a skill. So I did lawn mowing for a while, and I did many different things. I did some stuff with computers, which were kind of, um, it wasn't like computers were new when I was a teenager, but they were something that was becoming more um, useful in households and in businesses. So I did stuff with that. One summer, my dad hooked me up to someone he knew, and they had a brick driveway, or brick uh, walkway that was probably from the stage out to the street and maybe like five feet wide and went out there. And he told me they want to replace that. And I get the opportunity to learn how to take up brick from this walkway. And so I got this, I don't even know what you call it, but it was something that shoveled brick and like this wide. And it was mortared in. And the first day, an hour into it, I had done like maybe three feet of this 75-foot walkway. It was at that day I made two decisions. One, I was not made for manual labor. Like my arms and my body were not made for that. 
And that was the day that I took my dad up. I am going to go to college. I think that is an excellent idea. And then it was later I realized, wait a second. Is that what he was doing? It was like, you're going to college, and I'll find a way that you'll want to go to college. And that summer I did that driveway and that walkway. It was, uh, it was a lot of work. But for you, finding that I was made for this, some of you are good at math. Some of you are just love to work with people. Some of you have worked with animals, and you just, like, God has given you this connection of, like, that's something I was made for this. But when you find that, that fulfillment, that purpose, there is a special connection of this is a gift that I have found this. And Psalm 95 wants you to have that with God. So let's look at this Psalm 95. Come, Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is great, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Come, Let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did the day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So in this passage, it's pretty simple, and today is not anything that's revolutionary in the sense of like that maybe you've never heard, but it's a great reminder And I basically broke it down into three parts that really come alive in this passage. The first one you can see on the screen is this. What is worship? And this passage takes a little bit of time to delve into what is worship. And worship can kind of be like love. We all know what it is. We all have a variety of ways that we could describe it. But a perfect, succinct definition can be hard to encapsulate all of what it is. And if we went around the room, like love, worship, you might all have a little bit different definitions. And I know if Pastor Matt was up here, I've heard him give his definition. It would be different a little bit than mine. And all the writers that I've read, they would give a little bit. So we'll use this kind of succinct definition that I wrote down. And it's similar to ones you will hear other places that talk about worship. Worship is the act of ascribing worth or value that engages your entire being. So let me say that again. The act of ascribing worth or value, and that's what David does in the psalm here, that engages your entire being. And I would use this phrase, it's really the ultimate value is what we're talking about in worship. It's that final goal or end to which all lesser goals are just the means. So the ultimate value 
puts everything else as just a means to the ultimate value. And so what do we mean when we say we engage the entire being? And that's why I love this psalm. As you look at the text this morning, you will see that David says the mind, the will, the emotion, our physical bodies are all involved when we go into worship. Look at verse number one. He actually just uses physical, come let us sing. So using your vocal cords and you shout aloud to the rock of your salvation. So we're actually using our bodies and all through the psalm, David says, lifting up your hands. In this passage, he also says, come let us bow down, a physical act of bowing down in worship. It's also emotion. We sing and we shout. These are emotions that come out. We give thanksgiving. He says we extol him with music and psalms. So it's this emotion that's inside of us. It's also our will. It's this physical act of I am going to give submission. It's volition. I bow down and kneel and worship, he says in verse number six. I surrender myself. So it's part of my will that I'm giving over in worship. And it's also our reason, our mind, our thinking. And he says at the end of this chapter, for he is our God, we are as the people of his pasture, the flock and his care. Today, if only you would hear my voice. And so then he goes into reason, like listen to what I say and reason with your mind. So mind, will, emotion, our physical bodies, it is our entire being that comes to God when you worship. So if you experience worship, but it doesn't change you, all parts of your being, if you don't have life change, you don't submit to God, you're not experiencing true worship. In other words, you might experience the emotion of worship, but if it doesn't include your entire being, then it's not really true worship. Because worship is not just a good feeling. Not, worship is not just mental assent. It is all parts of you that come to God in worship. And this is a very important part of this passage. And he continues on. There's two parts of you saw in there that he uses the word for. One of them is for the Lord is great, the great king above all gods. Later on, he uses this for he is our God. These two words for are very important because what David's doing is he's taking inventory of the greatness of God. He's taking inventory of the goodness of God. And he's basically asking you, do you understand the value of God? And that's why this word for is important. So he says this is what you should do, but why? He says for he is our God, for he is great. And that's a great verse in your Bible to underline whenever you see therefore or for or because, because the writer is going to demonstrate we're going to take account and we're going to take inventory of what the Bible says about God. You know, it's really something of value we're talking about, inventory of the value of God. And you have things in your own life that you can identify with value. Have you ever watched the Antique Roadshow on PBS? I love that show. I think that show came to the United States in the 80s or 90s. It was 
in Europe before that, and it became a really big hit on PBS, and it travels all around the country. But people bring in things that they think might have value, some of them because they think it might have personal value to their family, and they just want to know in what context does it have value to other people. Um, Some of them have historical value. Sometimes they want to know if it has monetary value. My favorites are when they don't know what it was. You know, they were using it for something, and they come in, and the person describes what it is, and they don't know what it actually was, and I find those to be very interesting. There's a man whose name was Lauren Kreitzer. He was watching the Antique Roadshow once, and you may have seen the episode that he was watching. Um, A guy brought in a Navajo blanket, and the guy brought in this Navajo blanket, and he just knew it as an old blanket. He didn't know the history of it at all. And he had used it as a blanket as a kid. His foster dad had given it to him, and his foster dad had given it, uh, had been given it by his grandmother. They didn't know the history of it at all. And he brought it in, and the person that was uh, appraising it said right away, this is the most important piece that I've ever appraised on the show. And the most important piece that had ever been brought in um, that he had seen. And it was this Navajo blanket that was a first of its kind in the sense of it didn't have beads on it. And this is what it looks like. And this is actually a picture from the show. And this was just a blanket that this guy on the left had used as a kid. When he was done using it, he set it over his chair. And it had sat there for several years. And um, Lauren Kreitzer is watching the show. And he's like, wow, that's pretty neat. I have a blanket that looks pretty similar. He got more interested in the similarity of the blanket because at the end of this, the appraiser said on a bad day, this would go at auction for $350,000. On a good day, you could get $500,000 at auction for this blanket, to which this guy was blown away. But Lauren says, I need to go get that blanket out of my closet. He, gets the, he pauses the show and he gets the blanket and holds it up right next to the TV. And he's like, that does look like mine. Now, it was a little different, but he's like, it looked similar to his. So he goes to his mother and he says, I got to show you the show that looks like this blanket because he had received this blanket from his grandmother. When his grandmother passed away, he went to his grandmother's house because she had promised him a couple of books. When he got to his house, there was the couple of books. There was nothing left in his grandmother's house except for two blankets. And his sister said, I'll take a blanket, you take a blanket. They didn't think anything of it, and he went home and put it in his closet. For seven years, this blanket had been sitting in his closet. He had done nothing with it since his grandmother passed away. So he shows his mom, he's like, do you see this blanket? Don't you think it looks really similar? And his mom says, yeah, right. Probably no one would give you $10 for that blanket. Well, Lauren didn't think that was right. So he brought it to an antique dealer and the antique dealer turned him away. Others dismissed it as just a run-of-the-mill Mexican blanket. The last place he tried 
was a place called John Moran Auctioneers, and they specialized in Native American artifacts. And they appraised the blanket at $200,000. And they said, the first thing you should do is buy insurance for this blanket. Now think about this blanket that had been sitting in his closet for seven years. He's now got to go buy a $200,000 insurance policy for it. So a lot of people offered him money up front for it. And once they knew that it had some value. So he decided that he would go to auction. He had had a rough life. He had been in an accident where he had lost his leg. He was living on disability at this point in his life. He brought it to auction. The auction went like a blur. It only lasted 77 seconds. They started the auction at $150,000. And in 77 seconds, the auction ended at $1.5 million. $1.5 million. You can go online and watch the video. He and his wife at 150, when someone bid 200, they're like, yes, 250. Like, ooh, three. As the, I mean, it's only 77 seconds long. He starts to slump in his seat like, I just can't believe this. They start crying. He said after his fees, he got a check or a bank transfer for $1.2 million, I think. He said he called his bank to check his balance every day for like a few days. And they're like, you have 1200000 He just couldn't believe it. He said he was living on $200 a week previous to that. Seven years, it sat in his closet. I think the parallel this morning is there are going to be many people that get to the end of their life and they're going to miss the treasure that was offered to them their entire life. And that treasure, David is saying, is coming to worship God. And that is what worship looks like is this is my treasure david continues on so why do we worship so first what is worship second why do we worship the obvious one from the passage is that god is worth it he says for the lord god is great he's a great god look what he's done and he continues on the passage and he articulates some of the things that god has done in his hands are the depths of the earth The mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and the hands, and his hands form the dry land. I think what's interesting here that David is doing is David is going to a lot of the undiscovered parts of the earth that man cannot comprehend all of it. And God is saying, Listen, these are all mine. I formed them. So, for instance, the depth of the earth it talks about. Geologists are constantly learning what is underneath us. And God knows. He not only knows, he says, I formed that. The mountains, these great feats that people try to climb, and they just try to climb as many of them as they can. David says, yes, God made those too. The sea, the undiscovered parts of the sea. He says, God made those. All the land that we see that you cannot even in your lifetime take the time to see all of it. God formed all of this. So the first is he's trying to explain you serve a great and awesome God. 
But I think the most important part of this passage in why we worship is this passage here where it says, for the Lord God is the great God, the great king above all gods. I think the most interesting thing about this is how many places in the Bible does it say, I am the only God. There is no God but me. All throughout the Psalms and all throughout the scripture. So why does David say in this passage, he's the great king above all gods, if he's the only God? Some other passages, David would say it by th- uh, like this, or even Moses would quote God, I am the one true God. And what's interesting about this passage, and I think answers the question, why do we worship? Is to recognize that you already worship a God. The world is not divided into those people that worship and those people that don't worship. We all worship. And what we need to do is recognize that your heart already ascribes worship to something. Recognize what that is that you are worshiping. And David says, transfer it to worshiping God. And that is what changes your life. So someone might say, I'm not religious. And David would argue that you are religious you worship something and that's why he says he's the god above all gods in other words he's the god above all the things that you worship do you remember i don't know how many of you read the harry potter books or watched the movie do you remember there was that one point in the movie i think um harry is hiding um hiding out and he comes into a room And he finds this mirror. And upon looking in the mirror, he sees his parents. He sees his late parents. The name of the mirror was Erised, which is desire spelled backwards. And Harry looks into the mirror and he sees his parents. And he's super excited because he never knew his parents. And now he gets to see what they look like. So what he does is the next night when he comes back, he takes his friend Weasley to see this mirror because he wants Weasley to see his parents. And do you remember what happens when Weasley looks into the mirror? He doesn't see Harry's parents. He sees himself as the Gryffindor Quidditch captain holding the Quidditch cup. He had always been overshadowed by his brothers And in the mirror, he sees himself doing something great that he had always done. And Harry asks for an explanation later on this. And what the mirror was, was something that would show you your greatest desire. And what Harry's greatest desire was to know his parents. He brought someone else thinking that person would see his parents also. And they saw their greatest desire. And when we look at this passage, why we worship, the interesting thing about this is most people live like this. And what they would see in this mirror is the things that they value, the things that bring joy and happiness and peace and success and power and acceptance. Or the opposite, 
the things that they fear in life that they're controlled by. My question for you, if you looked into a mirror and it showed you what your greatest desire in life is, I bet you wouldn't be able to guess at first what was in the mirror. Because I think we all fool ourselves at what we think we desire most. But what would you see? And the interesting thing about it is, I think if you were looking to the mirror and you were a perfect follower of God, you know what you would see in the mirror? You would see yourself perfectly enjoying God. That's what David is saying. And that is a perfect follower of God's greatest heart's desire and the thing that would give him the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction would someone be someone that's enjoying God. And that's why he says in heaven, what you will do and what will give you the greatest joy is enjoying God forever. But we're not perfect, are we? We sin and we follow desires that aren't always after God. And God is saying, follow me and I will change your heart. And David is saying, one of the reasons you worship and one of the things you go to God's word is that I am the one that will satisfy you. I am the one that is your God, that is your shepherd, that will forgive you and will help change you when you fail him. So David is saying, reassign the ultimate value in your life to worship God over all these other things, or in this passage, he says, above all other gods. So if your God is for success, if your God is for riches, if your God is acceptance, if your God is to have people around you that value you, he says, put those off and focus your attention on the one thing that will give you true desire and value. Jason last week talked about the different ways that you can meditate on God's word. And I hope that you put some of those into practice. And I would encourage you this week to take another one. Uh, He talked about reading a verse and meditating on it. He talked about memorizing scripture, using an app that helps you uh, find different ways to study God's word. One of them, though, he said was on meditation. And the reason that meditation is so important in reference to this is it's realigning your heart. It's realigning your heart to worship God above all your other gods. And that is what satisfies you. And God says, then I will be your shepherd. So the last one then is this. How do we worship? And I have four tools as we close up the end of our message. How do we worship? And they're, they're right in the passage. You can discover them yourselves. I'll highlight some of them. The first one, which is pretty obvious, is community. And it's so obvious because it's mentioned so many times. He says, let us come, let us, multiple times in the passage. It says, we, plural, are his people. He said he is our God, all throughout the Psalms, and in Psalm 95 specifically, David has said, if you want to worship, you need to find community that you worship with. You know, 
personal worship with God is very important. And Jason talked a lot about that last week. I feel like in the scripture and in, in echoed in the New Testament is your personal worship is preparation for community worship. Community is a great place where you can worship God and know him in a greater and a deeper way. When I was growing up uh, in college, I had a couple friends when I was growing up. When I went to college, I really made new friends because none of my high school friends went to the same college as me. And there was these two guys, Dave um, and Aaron, that were really close friends of mine all throughout college. We met my freshman year and we became friends right almost right away in college and graduated the same time together the interesting thing was dave and i had a lot of things in common aaron and i had a lot of things in common aaron and dave had a lot of things in common and the relationship really came alive when all of us were together When Dave and I were together, it was great. We had a great time together. But there was this aspect mixing of Aaron, who was kind of a goofball and would do anything, which was very risky in college. If you make friends like that in college, just make sure that you have another friend with you that is willing to say no. Aaron didn't have that filter a lot that said no. Dave had a very thick filter and was not a risk taker at all. And so when I was with Aaron, the, it was fun. When I was with Dave, it was fun. When all of us were together, it's like it brought out the personalities in a greater way in all three of us. And in a similar way, I think that one of the things about community, getting an accurate vision of who God is in all the facets and views of God, I don't think you'll ever get to know those unless you worship in community. And as a matter of fact, I would say to you, the more diverse your community, I think even better. And so I think rich and poor, if you're, if you're in middle class, if your worship opportunities don't have great diversity, you're going to miss out on a lot of aspects of God. Your, your worship should have all different kinds of ethnicity when you worship. And if you've never had the opportunity to worship and spend time uh, either in a small community group or in a worship part like this that has other ethnicities, you're missing out on learning about who God is. And I think diversity in worship is a great way to learn and know who God is. Because God is looking to heal you, but not only you, maybe psychologically or emotionally, but God's looking to heal the whole world. And he's looking to bridge the gaps of all races and all classes. And worship is a way that we get to know God in this way if we do it in community. The second one is truth. (coughs) David echoes this in many of his psalms. You cannot worship God properly if you don't do it based in truth. And how does David know this? David submits himself to the prophets and the scriptures that were written before him. Not only does he have personal experience with God, but throughout his life, he talks about the prophets and those who came before him that knew who God was. David did not do this. David did not say, I like to think this about God. David was dedicated to the truth 
about God. And you know what's ironic about that is a lot of people like to shape their own religion and their view of who God is. And the ironic thing about this is it's not a living God. If you make up your own God, do you know that's just a cardboard cutout of a God? It's not a God that will fight with you or fight for you. It's not a God that will argue with you. It's not a God that will challenge you. And ironically, you've cut yourself off from a real relationship with God because you made him. And it looks just like the God that you would want. And that God will not challenge you. The second thing is you can't be part of a community if you make up your own God. That God will be unique to you. And you actually isolate yourself from community when you make up your own God. But if you submit to the word of God, you will find that you're grounded in truth and you can travel all the way across the world and you can meet a believer who submits to the word of God and David says the one true God and you will have instant community. You may not speak their language. You may have very little in common with them and you have this instant worship community because you are worshiping the same one true God. And the interesting thing about this is I think that our bent is to create a God and not like we on purpose create a God, but to create a God that is someone that we think we would like. And that cuts you off from community and is not a real relationship. So the second one is truth. The third one I put down is presence. And David in this psalm and in many of his psalms says, come before him or come into his presence. It's personal and it's relational. Another place David writes when he's struggling with God, cast me not from your presence. In Isaiah, Isaiah says, God, come down with me. There's a personal relations presence of God. Now, I remember a couple of weeks ago, um, and I'm pointing you out, Erin, you shared your testimony a couple weeks ago. One of the things you said when you first interacted with submitting yourself to God is there's someone here and it's real and there's this presence. And you're like, I didn't even know what it was at first. But you later described that it was Jesus with me. And it was so powerful because I think it's the testimony of many people when they come to believe in God and they have worship, there's this presence of God with me. And at first, I'm not sure I know what to do with it, but it's so powerful. And David is saying you need to feel and sense God's worship. And so even though God is everywhere, if you worship God in truth and you worship God in community, what you'll sense is the presence of God. You'll sense it in his grace. You'll sense it in his love. You'll sense it in his majesty. And I hope that's the experience many times when you're worshiping here on Sunday morning is that God is here. God is with me. John describes it like this, the spirit of God that is working in you. He describes it like the wind. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it's going. 
and we can't even see it, but we feel it and we sense it. This last week, Jill and I spent a couple days in San Francisco. I have not been to San Francisco, so we went and did the major things in San Francisco. If you can think of the things that are iconic for San Francisco, we probably did it. And my tendency is maybe race from one to the other and not spend as much time. One of the things you have to do is you have to cross the Golden Gate Bridge. And so when we're crossing the Golden Gate Bridge, they told us, hold on to your hats and everything with you because it's really windy. And I'm like, okay, you know, I felt wind. And like you turn the corner and go on the Golden Gate Bridge and it's like this flow of wind, just a gust. And like you're trying to take pictures sometimes of it and like you feel like my phone is going to fly over the edge of the bridge. And it's this wind that like they describe where it's coming from the ocean. And this is like they call it the air conditioning duct into California because the wind and the fog come in there. And over the centuries, these sailors have mastered the wind of the sea and come into this harbor. And there was ships, you know, 100 200 years ago, so many ships that would fill the harbor. And I feel that's the way it is with the Spirit of God and with worship. You don't create the wind. You may not be able to even see the wind, but a sailor learns to master the wind. And worship is similar, and that is you do not create the Spirit of God. You do not create the truth, but you master worship in this way, and that is when the Spirit is moving It's skillful in worship is seeking the spirit, is expecting God's presence and knowing what to do when God's presence comes. The last one, and we end with this one, is listen and have rest. And if you were listening during the scripture this morning, to be honest, I wasn't sure about addressing the last part of this Psalm 95 because it kind of uh, is a little bit, in my mind, of a downer. Like, he's come worship, God's great. And then it has this phrase, listen. And then he says, don't be like you were before. And it talks about God's anger and wrath being stirred up. And basically what he describes is the first generation out of Egypt, they were stubborn, they didn't listen, and they died in the wilderness because of it. And Paul in Hebrews does not want you to miss this. In Hebrews chapter 4, Paul identifies this passage as being really important. Listen to what Paul says in Hebrews. And he's speaking to people that have heard the gospel. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we have also had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, speaking of this Psalm 95 and the people that came out of Egypt. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we have believed, now we who have believed enter that rest just as God had said, and this is a quote from Psalm 95 that we read this morning, So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And he goes on in Hebrews 4 to basically describe this idea that unbelief kept this generation from entering the rest and the promised land that God had promised to them. They heard the word, but they did not profit from it 
because they did not receive it in faith. And he quotes Psalm 95 and 11 to to demonstrate that God has a rest available to us. And this rest is after the pattern of God's own rest that he rested on the seventh day. And that is a quote from Genesis 2, chapter 2. See, the gospel is the perfect life of Jesus that took our place. Religion says, live a good life that gives you a good record. And the gospel is opposite of that. The gospel says, ultimate rest is believing in God and believing you don't have to live perfect because God was the perfect substitute for you. Going back to earlier in the message, everyone is working at something. And if you do not get this last part where he says, listen and have rest, you know what you'll do? You'll turn worship into another work. You'll start to categorize worship. You'll start to look at the form of worship and you'll add worship to just another thing in the rat race of life. Like I have to get to church or this is how we have to worship to get God's spirit. And it'll become a load that weighs down on you and it won't be out of joy and it won't be out of thanksgiving. And so the last part, he says, listen, don't be like this generation that ignored and did not have faith. Listen and worship you will find is the place that you have rest. So you know what's interesting as I conclude? This passage does not ever say this is what you need to ask of God, which the scripture is full of that. Scripture is full of places, ask this of God or come to God and plead for this. And this passage doesn't do that. It doesn't have anywhere it says, ask this of God. And this is why I believe that he wrote this psalm in this way. I'm not asking, I'm just viewing God for who he is, and I'm getting a sense of the high beauty of God. And what does that look like? If I, believe, if I belong to the great king that David talks about, I am his, he is mine. I do not know what the future is going to look like. But I can have peace and I can have rest. And true worship brings a gospel kind of rest because there is so much beauty And God is so much greater in all the evil of the world. All the troubles of the world can be overcome by just a thought from God. And the scripture tells us that one day he'll wipe away all of it, all of the evil, all of the trouble. And that's where true rest comes from. And in the end, God and the worship of God is where you find joy and where you find rest.